we do this a lot. You know, so many of us will talk about, well, I should, you know, I should have this and I should do that. And it's like, pardon my French, just fucking do it. Do it mm. or shut up. Don't mm. should. Because a life of shoulds is a life that's completely unlived. Okay, welcome back everyone to Lost and Searching, previously known as the Mindful Leader podcast. Here in season two, we are focusing on the theme of stress and breakdowns. And today we are speaking with a man named Richard. And Richard is someone who's very experienced and very energetic and has very kindly shared a lot of his story with us, especially around dealing with stress and kind of growing through it as well as overcoming it. We talk about things like worry, journaling, personal experiences in life-changing events and changing your life as a result. And it's a really enjoyable episode because Richard is someone who is very easy to speak with and to listen to. Very quickly before we get started, I wanted to let you know that if you enjoy the show, you could help me out by filling out a survey that I'm running. If you've listened to at least a couple episodes, please go down to the description below. But without further ado, let's get into it. Self-sabotage is our conscious and our subconscious resisting, you know, the conflict between the conscious and the subconscious, and it's that resistance that we are trying to understand and overcome. We help people become aware of how their minds work. What are their default settings? Do they tend to be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic? All of us have the same regrets when we die. All of us have pretty much the same regrets. Why didn't I live truer to my own purpose? Why was I swayed by other people's ideas of what I should do? Many leaders feel that they have to be perceived as bold and strong and courageous. And there's almost this thought that a lot of people have in which they feel they can't show others that they're weak. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. Welcome back, everyone. We are here with Richard. Richard, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. And can I say what a pleasure it is to be here? Well, it's a pleasure to have you. We uh, spoke for the first time just a few days ago, and I wanted to get you on the show as quickly as I could um, because you have uh, a lot of actually really kind of down-to-earth and honest experiences to share with us, and it's also really easy to speak to you. It's really easy and enjoyable to speak to you and hear from you. So there are a lot of things I want to I wanna talk about today, but I guess let's just get started with uh, kind of uh, the, the standard introductions. Tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, your background, etc., etc. I'd love to. Thank you very much. Well, it's interesting because I hope I can give your readers some practical tips, although I know they are very, very smart. So part of my life is delivering workshops. And what I often say to people, you know, you do a workshop and you get people to introduce themselves. And a lot of the time when people are introducing themselves, the rest of the audience are too busy thinking about themselves and what they're going to say before they introduce, you know, they, they step up to the mark. So what I always recommend is that you should be able to tell your one minute story. And the one minute story is something you practice and then deliver. Here's my one minute story. Okay, nice. <laughs> I was born into a middle class family back in 1961. I am incredibly old. My father was a headmaster and then a school inspector. My mother was an ex-nurse who looked after the house. And I was a smart kid although I was lazy and I passed my, what used to be the 11 plus, I went off to a grammar school and I assumed that that was enough. So the first lesson I will share with people is being smart is not enough. So I nearly got kicked out after my first year at school, age of 11, gradually got a bit better. I wanted to go as a career into the merchant Navy. Uh, my parents wanted me to go to university, which was at a time when fewer than 10% of uh, young people did. And I was adamant I wanted a life at sea until my grandmother said, I don't want my grandson going to university because it's nothing but sex and drugs, at which point I could not get to university fast enough to discover it wasn't true. Um, I, I did a degree in international nice. economics. Um, and the, the truth is, um, what interested me then was the mystique of cars, because I was at university at Warwick, a lot of car manufacturers around me. And I, when I graduated, I blagged my way into what was Rover. Um, and that's where I kind of fell in love. I'm not mechanical in any way, um, but I enjoyed the marketing and I fell into the world of events, the glamour of car launches. And that kind of started my career in events, which has continued to this day. But 
I was also very interested in how humans respond to events and experiences and how they behave in meetings. Um, and I used to do a lot of work in that area. And I became a kind of consultant um, looking at how companies can use events and how you should engage with people. So the two themes of my life have been the world of meetings and the world of learning. And now I run a company um, that works in all aspects of events. It's going really well. And I would say that it's taken me nearly 40 years to become an overnight success. So that is my one minute story. I hope I timed that right. Um, so that's kind of what I what I do. And I think the important question, as we spoke about a couple of days ago, is that is the what I am. Um, mm. And sometimes I think well, it can be quite difficult to, to describe yourself when you take the work out of it. I am a divorced man with a great relationship with my first wife. And I now live a very simple, happy life with my partner here in the south of France. Um, I like to think of myself as a pseudo creative. That means I'm creative, but I don't do it very well. Um, and I often think of myself um, as, the, as um, the sand that gets into the oyster, which irritates everyone. And as you may know, that's how you create pearls. So that's me. There we are. I'm the irritant for a lot of companies. It's, oh God, that Richard, he's so irritating. And, and my role is often to be a kind of corporate jester. Sure. And we you talked about uh, what it means to you to be a corporate jester the other day. Run us through through that, because actually um, there are certain elements here that I really want to pick up on. That is one of them. So I'd love for you to walk us through that, too. Well, you're right. I mean, I think the thing is people will say uh, they can rely on me to make a joke and it won't necessarily always be at the right time, because I think humor can often be the the easiest way to break the ice and get people to be comfortable. But there's a, a very famous quote by uh, I think it's Helen Tober, who says, when the mouth is open for laughter, it's possible to drop in a morsel of knowledge. And that's my idea that, that humor is often just a, a shortcut. But going back to your point about the, the jester throughout history, you know, it's, um, it's quite an interesting topic. But essentially, although we just think of jesters as people wearing funny hats and, and trying to do stupid things, actually, the jester's role was to say sometimes to the king or to the emperor, the unpalatable things that no one else wanted to hear, but in such a way that they wouldn't cause offence and possibly chop someone's head off. Um, so jesters were there sometimes uh, to, to take a very satirical role and to kind of um, you know, prick the bubble of pomposity um, and, and bring everyone kind of back down to normal. Uh, and sometimes also to explain concept, uh, complex co concepts and ideas quite simply. So um, when I've been described as a jester, I have no issue with that right it's something you uh, kind of seem to have taken as a, as a badge of honor and you know what it, it makes sense when you put it that way because it means you can kind of how do i describe this you've taken it and you've made it your own you said well this is a, a role that i play where i'm able to to help people in a certain way so when I say there are a couple of bits I want to kind of pick out here, that is one of them. And the other one kind of being about being really interested in the way events made you understand how people work, right? Understanding how people work is a huge, huge thing to me personally, but also in, in such a way as I think really affects uh, what we are able to get out of this show. Because so much of understanding who we are, why we tick, uh, why we deal with challenges in the way that we have, how we overcome them, comes from a fundamental understanding of how human beings work and why we work the way we work, and then our own kind of context within that. So there are a couple of things kind of using that as a platform that are specific to you that I'd like to discuss. The first general kind of topic is what kinds of things do we do when things go wrong? So it might be that you have personal kind of understanding of this, or it might be that it relates back to, you know, your experience in the events industry, because I worked in events for a short while, actually, and things can go wrong all the time. So what are the typical kind of responses for people when things go horribly wrong, and we need to figure out what to do and make a change or something? Sure, I think that it's a it's a very good question. I, I'd like to go back just one stage then. And, and again, sure. benefit your for your listeners, is say that I'm I'm always very keen to kind of find out a bit more about me and therefore what impact I have on other people 
and, and it works the other way. And there are a number of very simple questionnaires that, that many of your listeners may have uh, have actually done. And if not, we can, we can probably post up the link so they can find them out. Yeah. A lot of them um, use the work of people like Freud and Jung. Um, and this isn't going deep into psychology because it's not my topic, but it's really about looking at how people respond to the world around them. Um, and you can look at, for example, you, could, you can take a Myers-Briggs analysis, and, and some people may yeah. be familiar with that, or MBTI. Interesting piece of trivia, Myers and Briggs are actually mother and daughter. Here we are, one, one for your girl power there. Really? Yeah, and um, you can, <laughs> yeah, you look at your, your Myers Briggs profile. There's also one called Social Styles. It does tend to, I think, to think about it, it does tend to pigeonhole people in one of four quadrants, and it doesn't. You know, they're, they're useful, but it doesn't mean that that's what you are. It's simply how to how you choose to behave. And then, so going going on to your point about what you see at events. Well, it's interesting because the events industry is one that is supposed to be one of the five most stressful jobs in the country. And I, I always laugh at really? this and think, well, you know, we put on we put on meetings for people and parties. We don't hold their lives in our hands. You know, they couldn't necessarily die on the operating theatre. We might poison them occasionally. Um, so I, sometimes I think if you find it that stressful, maybe find another career. You know, choose in life the right the, the right things to do because life is about the choices. But, you know, I've been at events where things have gone wrong and people do react in, in different ways. Some people okay. will immediately respond very badly. So, for example, I was working at an event. We had a very high profile speaker and the microphone uh, stopped working and no one can hear right. him. And the interesting thing is it's his assistant that is running around like a headless chicken shouting at people, whereas the speaker is infinitely calm because at the end of the day, it's just his microphone that stopped working. It's not his heart. And sometimes yeah. you just have to have a sense of perspective. And I know, you know, your fantastic mm. podcast talks to people about how they deal with challenges. And I think one of the things to do is just put it into perspective. You know, it's mm. a microphone. You know, it's not surgery. And someone sure. else will come on and get it. And you can kind of see the difference between the real professionals who just take a deep breath and go, right, what should we do here? Mm. And, and it's that kind of response is interesting. There are ways of kind of coming at that situation to make it easier, right? Because um, there are people who will be naturally more stressed at that kind of situation. There are people who will have good days and bad days, right? We all have good days and bad days. And um, a word that I love uh, for that kind of situation is playfulness. So coming at that situation with a sense of playfulness kind of helps calm you down. You go, oh, it's actually not a big deal because we're all still going to go home at the end of the day and get tucked into bed and be fine. And you know what I mean? Um, it just it just helps you with a sense of like, oh, okay. And the funny thing for me, um, the thing I've, I've always found funny, not just when I started to get more interested interested in this, but throughout my whole life, when I was a kid, I was like, when you're this stressed out, you're not getting anything done, right? If you're running around like a headless chicken, like you just described, um, how constructive could that possibly be? And so you actually kill your own productivity as a result of thinking that you're going to be achieving more or whatever, right? If that kind of makes sense, your stress actually is counterproductive. It because I guess it's because stress is meant to help us, you know, run away from bears or whatever, and that's not what we're doing anymore. But nonetheless, what that screams to me is, well, let's practice the skills and the mindsets that help us reduce stress and 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 um, cope with it better. And so that kind of brings me to my next question, which is, how do you deal with stress and or how do you help others deal with stress, right? So whether it's staff members you've had in events or partners that you've had, what do you see as helping with stress the most? I think it's a brilliant question. And, and in fact, there are there are a whole host of things. I think one of the things, just mm. picking up on what you said, is it, it's true. Behavior is contagious. You know, we know that. So, you know, whether you kind of you know, look at how crowds behave, which is an important part of you know, people who organize things like festivals, for example, seeing how panic will spread, you know, like a virus through a crowd and just watching how people respond. Yeah. Um, inevitably, I've worked with people who I regard as bad managers because 
um, their experience has only been with bad managers, people who get get things done by shouting, and and that fear is not a way sure. of doing anything. One of the things I would say, this is a bit of a tip. I've always wondered why we look at you know uh, your home country. We look at America and we think the Americans have got this brilliant mm. level of customer service. And when I've sure. been there, I've thought, I thought I'm not quite sure whether it's true. But one thing I do notice is that if you're in a restaurant, what happens is you've ordered. The waiting staff will always come back and they'll just say to you, your dinner's on the way. And, it's, and you go, oh, great, that's fantastic. And you kind of feel, thanks for keeping me informed. I mean, they're not speeding it up. They're not cooking it. They're not doing anything except keeping you informed. And one of the things I would always suggest is, you know, there, there is this expression, nature abhors a vacuum. So if, if anything goes wrong, okay. just make sure people can see that you're trying to fit, put it right. So you can just say to people, we're working okay. on it. We're working on it. You know, if you, if you phone someone, you know, you, you phone, I don't know, uh, uh, your electricity provider, there's nothing worse than just being put on hold. But if they come back every now and again and say, I'm sorry to keep you waiting, but we are still looking, they can keep you there for hours quite happily. We just hate not knowing. And what I'd say is that if you, if you want to avoid this contagion of stress is just make people understand that people are working flat out to get yeah. the problem solved. Yeah, a little bit of... Um... I guess, keeping people in the loop a little bit of, I'm trying to think about why that's the case, but it's really fascinating. That saying, nature abhors a vacuum, I've never heard that before. But it makes sense because we don't like, we don't like not knowing, right? And I think it's the idea that someone's holding our hand, maybe the kind of idea that um, we are treated with enough respect to be 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 informed and be treated as if we deserve to know i just want to, i want to pick up on that because um there was a, a very famous guy lord putnam david putnam who's a british lord who used to run uh, the big hollywood studios and his um in his autobiography he talked about the fact that he would rather have a quick no than a long maybe in the world yeah. of yeah. putting films together and one of the things I, yeah, I would say to your listeners is that there are some things we face and we prevaricate madly because we're terrified of the consequences and I think back to you know being a frustrated teenager having unrequited love for for so many young ladies I hope my partner can't hear this it was a long time ago <laughs> uh, and my mates would say why don't you just ask her out? And it's like, well, because she'll probably say no. And you know, yeah, and she probably will. But at least you'll know. Otherwise, you just live this this kind of, this pain of not knowing. And you might think, well, it's pleasurable because she might say yes. Just get it over with. She'll say no, you sob into the pillow for a night, and then you get on with life. Um, and, and, you know, the, the serious part of this is that so often we are confronted by things that really terrify us. And I've often used the analogy of um, if you think of the worst horror film you've ever seen, okay. the one thing about horror films is that they can be terrifying, but the moment you see the monster, it's never quite as terrifying anymore. It's the tension seen... and the stress and the, and the anticipation, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And what we can't see terrifies us. And it doesn't matter what, and you know, I, I love yeah, great films like Alien. Um, and they're mm. terrifying. Or fantastic Hitchcock films. And Hitchcock, for example, would, would hardly ever show uh, you know, a monster or the murderer because the moment you saw that, it, it, they, they, it suddenly didn't become terrifying. You faced it. Mm. And I, I get people to think about that in their own lives with whatever terrifies them, whether it's professionally or personally. Once you've confronted it, it will stop being as threatening as it was. I'm not suggesting it will suddenly become a great pleasure, but it will stop being the all-encompassing fear. Yeah, and kind of touching on fear, and in a way, fear moves into into our worries, right? Here in, in London, we have, I don't know, how would you describe it? Like self-referral mental health services. And uh, what they'll do is they'll host a series of regular workshops on regular kind of common topics so one on anxiety one on depression one on worries one on stress i always found kind of funny about these works i went to a whole bunch maybe two or so years ago and what i found funny about them was a lot of them related and a lot of the advice in these different workshops were the same as 
each other, if that makes sense. A lot of the advice, a lot of the support, but also a lot of the explanations, which were often about the underlying kind of psychology or biology, um, they were all so similar. To me, worry and stress are very, very linked, where something stresses us out because we worry about it. Um, and I've seen, I've seen firsthand the effects of really, really intense worrying. Probably the best example I can think of by far is my grandmother. She's someone who's been a very intense worrier her whole life, which caused a lot of overworking and a lot of stress when she was younger. And now in her old age, she has an enormous amount of health issues to struggle with on a daily basis. And so it affects us on a very real level, as well as seeming a bit practically silly, like we talked about earlier. So I'm always really interested to understand how we can better overcome our worries so that it doesn't turn into stress, if that kind of makes sense. And the other day when we met, we talked about a worry list and what that is and what that looks like. So talk to us about how you've dealt with your worries and how you kind of would support others to do the same. Well, I think I'd be delighted to do that. And I think it's interesting because you mentioned about the people self-referring. And I think, mm. um, you know, I think it was, um, wasn't it, Charles Handy, the author, who used this, this analogy of um, a, a, a frog in, in water. You put a frog in a saucepan of water and you turn up the heat and the frog just keeps adapting until eventually it dies. Whereas if you yeah. drop the frog in boiling water, it would leap out. And I think a lot of people do that because you go through this process of change and you don't realize how bad things have got. And I remember a few years ago, I um, I didn't feel great. And it, it was because I had a contract with a company and I absolutely hated it. I was going yeah. through a divorce and I thought, well, that's going to cost me a fortune. Um, and there didn't seem to be anything in my life to look forward to. And I I wasn't actually sure what to do. And it took, you know, again, this point about fear, It because I'd never been through anything like this. It took me a while to go to my doctor uh, and the doctor was very sympathetic. Um, and I think I may have mentioned this. So one of the things that happened was he said, well, do you want me to sign you off sick? And the moment he said that, I was going, no, I don't think I need that. And what he did was he said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a document that says you should only do light duties. Well, I'm, you know, I'm okay. a consultant. I'm not even sure what light duties are. <laughs> and I had this piece of paper and I just put it in my wallet and I never used it, but it was great having it there. And what I would get people to think about is, well, what is your, it's almost like, what is your parachute that you want to carry about that you can you can actually use mm. to get out of these things? Um, and it's just like um, a very dear friend of mine who was a smoker for many, many years. When she gave up, um, she has to this day, 20 years on, still carry the cigarette around in a handbag. That, that, that God knows what state it's in now, because she said, "Well, it's really there if I twenty-year-old cigarette." Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just people do that with cocaine or anything like that, because <laughs> you could get into trouble. But I think this this thing about well, you know, I could do this, um, and I think that's th those kind of things we have to think about. Like, what is what is the safety net? You know, and the, and the yeah. truth is, we all have safety nets. You know, you, you run a business. You don't want it to fail, but if you set it up as a limited company, the safety net is if it fails, you don't lose your house. I know yeah. that could be quite dramatic, but you know you you don't need to think about um, well, I might lose everything. It's like no, it'll be disappointing if your company fails. And and again, going back to this point about facing your horrors, what I did at my lowest point was I put together a list. I just wrote them down and I said, what is my worry? And mm. so it's like, you know, we're getting divorced. And what, and then it came from there. Another thing, one of my worries was I've got to tell my mother, my mother who adored and still adores my now ex-wife. And I thought, so you have to say, but why? Mm. And I thought, well, it's going to upset my mother. Okay, now I, so it's not telling my mother, it's my mother will be upset. Anyway, what happened was I ended up with a list of about 15 things and then you just have to kind of face them. Uh, and I told my mother I was getting divorced. And my mother said, that's a shame. Have you heard about your nephew? It's like, wait, what? Can we go back to me a minute? Oh, yes, your nephew. He's broken his leg. No, mother, I'm getting divorced. Yes, that's the sad. I didn't think things were going very well. It's like, oh, OK. Well, you're my mother. You tend to be a bit smarter than I ever give it credit for. And what happened was I went through this list of things that have worried me. Uh, and I kept it on my computer and I had my worry list in red and gradually they stopped being worries. 
So what I did was mm. I changed the color. I took them out and I put them in another document, well, another table, literally right below my worry list. So it's like it was a worry. Now it's not. And I've continued to do that. And can I tell you that the things that really worried me, you know, kept me awake at night, gave me that kind of cramp in your guts. Mm. There have probably been about 50 of them. And I think if I look at my list now, there's about three. And the other 47 are now still on that document in my, I don't need to worry about this anymore. And right. I think you know, we can all do that. And actually, if I was to present my worry list to some people, they'd go, well, that's not really something to worry about, is it? But mm. you know, worries are quite personal. And I think that's you know, yeah. something else to learn. Worries are personal. If they, if they make you lose sleep, it doesn't matter whether other people say it's not an issue, but it's how you deal with it. Often these things revolt, resolve themselves. Um, we are one of my concerns. Other people would laugh at this. I had three cats. I have no children. I had three cats. Okay. And um, I was really worried. We're going to get divorced. What's going to happen to them? Uh, and unfortunately, before we sold the house, two of them died of old age. And the other one was then adopted by a friend of mine and lived uh, out her days on this beautiful farm up in Derbyshire. It's like, <laughs> well, let's fix that then. Now, other yeah. people would say, they're cats, Richard, get a life. But they were important to me. Yeah, this is it's the idea that your feelings are are valid because you only you are in your own shoes, only you are experiencing what you're experiencing. And something I've shared on this show before as well is the idea that sometimes things that seem silly, they matter because of the emotional impact that they have on you. Right. So um, why does a birthday party matter with luxuries like cakes and balloons and things like that when there are people suffering with all kinds of awful things all over the all over the planet or in awful situations well it matters because joy matters you know so why does why does the situation about your pets matter it matters because your care for them matters and your attachment to them matters right your relationships matter so that's i mean that's really really interesting and to me it's just another way of looking at this idea of your feelings are valid it's something that i think a lot of young people generally speaking seem to struggle with this idea we um we we get labeled as the the snowflake generation mm -hmm. right because things matter to us and we actually express it and what i've said based uh, about that for years probably since i was like 14 or 15 is well we are trying at least trying our best to build up the strength to actually admit that something is affecting us and if you don't admit it you can't deal with it i think that's very powerful i think that's a very powerful idea as opposed to pretending that something doesn't exist or acting like it doesn't affect you and what it leaves you room to do is find constructive uh, outcomes such as having a really detailed worry list that you can actually go and do something with and use it to constructively kind of solve the situations, you know? So I think that's a really practical, light-feeling piece of advice, if that makes any sense, right? It's uh, It takes something that's, that's really kind of scary or for some weird reason is debated or seems difficult. And actually, no, it can be really simple and practical and solvable and achievable. I love that. And I also really want to quickly touch on your note about having that safety net. We talked at the beginning about like how people work and how interesting it is people work in certain ways. And the idea that as long as you've got the idea that you could do the thing, such as having the cigarette, right? Your brain all of a sudden just makes a shift. I think, I think the way you described it the other day was something along the lines of, I don't like that I can't do it, but if I know that I can, but I'm making a choice, something changes. And the idea to me that something shifts within you and you get all this inner strength just because you're making a choice, not because you're forced to do something, that is really, really, I just find that infinitely fascinating, like how, how powerful we get when we do something because it's our own choice and not because we feel like we have to, you know? I think that is that is very true and very profound. And I think ultimately, one of the things I've learned over the years is how powerful this word choice is. But choice comes through mm. in, in so many different ways. And it's even down to things like um, language. Uh, and I was having a go, probably a bit unfairly, at my nephew, and because um, uh, he's rather... 
well, he's put on a lot of weight. I mean, he's almost got his own postcode now. And um, I comment, <laughs> no one else will actually address this issue. So, okay. um, uh, yeah, I, I did qualify because he, he said to me, he said, oh, I'm going to give my favourite uncle a hug. And I said, I don't think my arms are long enough. And I could see his mother, <laughs> my sister, kind of going, oh, no, don't say that, don't say that. Uh... It's like... He hasn't got a medical issue. He just likes food and drink too much. So when I when I was talking to him, and I, he's a lovely lad, and I love him to bits, and he said, uh, he said, oh, I can't lose weight. And I said, I want you to do me a favour. And he said, what is it? I said, I just want you to change your language to I won't lose weight. And, and then he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you, you know the answer. It's because you, you won't go to the gym and you won't do exercise, and you won't have less than eight pints when you go out. Don't say can't, because you can. <laughs> eight pints. And it's important that you change your language. Um, and it's like we, we do this a lot. You know, so many of us will talk about, well, I should. You know, I should have this, and I should do that. And it's like, pardon my French, just fucking do it. Do it mm. or shut up. Don't mm. should, because a life of shoulds is a life that's completely unlived. And yeah, you know, people will mm. say they'll look at their they'll look at their peers and their compatriots and their friends, and they'll go, "Oh, look, they've got a house. I should have a house, or I should have a car, or I should be in a relationship, or I should have a child." So I you know, just change your language. You know, mm. I'm not ready to do these things. I don't want those things because yeah, you know, they they do set up messages. It's a wonderful world of neurolinguistic yeah. programming that some of your your yes. you know, you'll know about, some of your listeners will know about. And language is incredibly powerful. So just use the right language. Yeah. I mean, and it's something before I found out, uh, learned a little bit about what uh, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming is. It's it's something I had, I had kind of thought about for a long time and didn't know was an actual kind of science or mm. pseudoscience or whatever you'd call it. The idea that little shifts in language can have a profound impact, something I've said for a long time and it sometimes feels like no one really takes it seriously when I say it. I'll say it especially to peers, um, like friends and things like that. So in kind of non-professional settings is when I'll usually say it, I'll kind of go, you're setting yourself up to believe what you're thinking based on your language. So shift your language, right? Um, a little little things you say kind of start to become reality. And I didn't, I don't think I understood why when I was younger, but I would always kind of notice if you said something in a certain way, if you changed one little word or you changed your tone, suddenly the actual feeling would totally shift. And if the feeling totally shifts, then how you respond to it or what the result might be would also totally shift. And what that kind of meant as I got older is I started to learn and I started to learn more about these things as I started to realize, well, why is that the case? Why are we like that? Well, it's because our brain doesn't always function as one whole all at the same time. So there's a beautiful quote that I've, I've shared on this show a number of times now, but I, I love it. So I'm going to keep saying it is I think this, I think it's a Chinese proverb that goes, um, don't speak ill of yourself because the warrior within will hear you and be lessened by it. So in other words, if I'm saying I'm shit at this or I look ugly today or any, could be any, any negative thing or I can't lose weight you know, as opposed to I won't lose weight, there will be a part of my brain that hears that and goes, okay, I guess that's what I am. I'm just going to accept that that's the case now. There's a, the, the unconscious part of my brain just accepts what the conscious part of my brain says out loud. But it also means that I can, I can speak different uh, beliefs. I can speak different situations into existence because I can convince uh, uh, the other part of my brain that's listening, right, that, uh, that something else is the case and fundamental transformative change can come from that. Absolutely. And, and you're so right. I mean, I, I work with people and they'll say things to be like, oh, Richard, I'm not creative. Uh, and mm. I said, well, creativity isn't a switch. It's not now it's yeah. off, now it's on. You are creative. You might think that some people are more creative than you, which is absolutely fine, is just a scale. But you are creative. You have a creative uh, sense within you, and we can help mm. cultivate it. It goes back to the, the very first point I made, which is being smart isn't enough. You, know, you have to yeah. practice these things. Uh, and you're right, and it is about saying, well, I'm willing to have a go. And I think, you know, as I've got disgustingly old, more than more, I, I'm willing to say, I'll give it a go. I'll, give, I'll, I'll have a go at that. 
because uh, you know one of my favorite quotes and i think i mentioned this to you um one of my favorite quotes is there is no failure there is only feedback so whatever you do mm. you know, it doesn't matter whether you start a business and you know, I've, I've had businesses and you could say well they failed well actually i've closed them down they're not you know they, i learned a lot from them so there is no failure there is only feedback so, you know, when, when mm. your people, are, you know, your listeners are thinking about this, they can look back at their lives and they might say, well, I failed at that. It's like, no, you didn't. Because actually, you, know, you talk about dieting. Well, I failed at that diet. No, you can just have another go. So there's just feedback because what didn't work last time? You know, what was it that made you yeah. give it up, and, you know, start indulging in something, drugs sure. or relationships or whatever else? It's just feedback. Mm. But then there's the it can create a frustration then when you don't get that feedback or you've failed for some unknown reason, right? And I think that can be there. There are elements of life uh, uh, online of on online life where someone can just be, someone can be mean for no reason or someone mm. can make a decision and you'll never find out why. Or in a way, it comes back to the communication we talked about earlier. You might just not be in the loop. And so you're like, well, how do I learn from this? And it creates a frustration. I, at least I know I get really frustrated when that happens because I'm like, well, mm. now what do I do? How do I improve? How do I try to make this not happen next time? You know? Yes. Well, a, a couple of tricks. I mean, I, I, it's interesting that I've done this. So when I'm doing a workshop for managers, for example, I'll often get people mm. to write down two scores. The first score is if you had to give someone some feedback on a scale of one to 10, where one is really wishy and 10 is really brutal, where would you like to give the feedback? Give yourself a score. And if you were receiving feedback, what would your score be? And the interesting thing is we go around, we do the maths, and I can guarantee without fail that the average for how I'd like feedback is three or four points higher than how I want to give it. And it's like this okay. myth that actually people don't want you to give feedback. And then we say, well, I'm saying look, you all want harder feedback, not brutal, but mm. just hard. And one of the things I'd say is that, um, you know, I've had bad managers and good managers. And, and we, we often tend to say, you know, you're doing okay. You get to your appraisal and it's you're doing okay or you're not doing okay. Those things are no use to anyone. Um, you know, and we have this phrase overall. Okay. Yeah. So it's a bit like seven. It's a bit like me taking your left hand and plunging mm. it into liquid nitrogen and your right hand and plunging it into boiling lava. Overall, mm. your temperature will stay the same, but we'll be calling you stumpy from now on. It's no use. If you give people feedback, <laughs> give really them precise feedback. You know, if sure. um, you know, someone asks you for help, I'm doing a presentation. Okay, let me give you some feedback. You have great poise. You command the room quite nicely. That's positive. Now, let me give you some what I call motivational feedback. Next time, sure. cut the crap and get straight into it. Start with a really dynamic question. Don't pick your okay. nose. Don't do this. Keep still. So what you do is you say, <laughs> yeah. this is what you do well. This is how you could be even better. It's a bit like, yeah. you know, I would say, if you're giving feedback, imagine you're a film director. You've got, I don't know, Brad Pitt. You can't just say, Brad, you're rubbish, because he's going to stomp off and lock himself in the Winnebago, and he's probably not yeah. rubbish. But you tell him how he can be even better. And yeah. th when we ask for feedback, go to the people who you know are going to say, oh, no, you're lovely, and say, how can I be even better at this? Yeah. Don't ask for them, you know, what do you think? You've got to be very specific. Yeah, making it very practical and very specific. And um, I'm about to make a very blanket statement but I think it's very easy for us to make blanket statements and that it's also very common to do. Um, and uh, as a result, what it feels like can happen is we're very used to receiving kind of vague feedback, vague comments, vague statements that can leave room for very, how, how do I best express this? That they don't really help anyone, but they can seem like they do so um something i've seen a lot more over covid uh as everything's moved even more online is lots of people starting more online based careers and so you're getting lots of uh speakers lots of online content where people are these people who are you know the gurus or whatever they're giving blanket advice if you do this you'll have this result you need to be this kind of person etc um without getting too practical or specific but also 
The problem I find with a lot of that is it isn't necessarily based on someone's context. Context is really important to me. I mean, from my perspective, it's always been incredibly important. I'd be, I think you'd be hard pressed to convince me otherwise, because your context will shift everything about what makes a situation relevant to you. And so I guess the more practical and specific you can get with it, the more contextual you can get with the way that you help others, the better they'll understand it. But then what's really interesting to me about that is you can also apply the same thing to yourself. So it can be very easy for me to go, oh, Seven, you're so shit. About what? That's not a helpful statement. Did I drop my food? Okay, if I dropped my food... That means I'm being clumsy, but it doesn't make me shit at everything or any less of a person or, do you know what I mean? But we just throw these really negative statements at, at ourselves. I think it's a very common thing to do, unfortunately. That's not specific either. And so I wonder if by getting more specific about our reflection, we reflect better, learn better and grow faster. I would totally agree with you. I think there's two things. I think one is mm. we there's probably no extent to which we can't even be more specific. So if someone could say, for example, oh, um, yeah, in this job, I'm no good at selling. And you think, well, okay, mm. so you're no good at selling, but maybe you're good at marketing or doing something else. But actually what we should do is say, let's have a look at what we mean by selling and see sure. which bits you don't think you're good at. Is it you don't like cold calling? Is it that you're not very happy getting past what we call a gatekeeper? Is it that you think you talk too much and don't listen too much? Is it that you're not very good at closing the sale? Because mm. I imagine even if you take something like selling, there are bits you're good at and bits we can develop, or maybe we don't develop them, we get someone else to do that bit of it. But I, I, I so agree with you. And I think one of the things is, if you think about when people go for interviews, how often it is for someone to say, oh, tell me your strengths and tell me your weaknesses. And I've given yeah. up on that because that's such a rubbish question. So I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I have no weaknesses whatsoever. I'm just mm. me. And there are things that the job entails, some jobs would entail, that I couldn't do. But that doesn't mean I'm weak. It doesn't mean it's a weakness. It just means I don't have that skill. So go and find someone who's better. But the mm. other thing I would say is that if you say, if someone says, okay, one of my strengths is I'm very determined, then I could just go, what, so you mean you're stubborn? Mm. No, no, I'm determined. What, you mean you just don't listen when people give you feedback? <laughs> no, no, that's uh, not what I mean. Yeah, it is. When you say you're determined. I get what you mean. Yeah, mm. it's, it's we use words and they all have a negative so actually, let's think carefully what we mean by this, because I want someone who's really determined. What, you mean you're just going to annoy me by not listening to you when I tell you to do something different? Yeah, stubborn. So I think, we, again, we have to be very careful with language, but also be careful when we talk about strengths and weaknesses. We are all perfect human beings. We sometimes choose to do stupid things, but we have a blend of skills that is right for a certain role. And in many cases, we just haven't found that role. And we have to be prepared to compromise. You know, it's mm. a, a job is a bit like a relationship. You know, I, th I think I'm perfect. My partner would disagree with me, but she'll, she would come on and say, I'm prepared to put up with some of Richard's foibles because, <laughs> you know, overall, he's not bad. I quite, she better not say overall. He's not bad. Overall, yeah. You know, I like living <laughs> with him. Yeah, he's got the good points that um, make up for his bad points. I hope. Sure. I love this line of thought. I feel like we could talk about it forever, but let's pivot a little bit into one of the other things that we talked about the other day to kind of round off our chat here. You mentioned to me, and you've talked about it throughout, of your divorce and kind of its restart in your life, uh, you've moved to the south of France, etc. Walk me through what kind of impact that had on you as much as you're comfortable to share. Because you mentioned that that had an impact on you and it's very understandable that it would. And I think it's important to understand for everyone listening that no matter where you are kind of in life or if you're someone who's as experienced as you are and has as many tips that you've you know, given us so many kind of tips and tricks, things will still affect you that that could change you as a person or change your perspective or make you feel a certain way or uproot your life. So, you know, what was that experience like for you? What impact you feel like it had? Well, it's interesting. I certainly don't mind sharing. But one of the things I would say, it's it's only almost when I look back over a sort of three or four year period and mm. people go, oh, that's amazing. And of course, when you're in it at the time, you almost don't realize. Um, and I was just, it, it probably felt to an extent that I was coasting. I had enough things to keep me occupied that 
I, yeah, I, sure. I didn't really have a plan. I always say to people, what happened was I came down to this little French village to see some very good friends who have a summer house. Um, and my French is so bad that when they sent me out to buy a <laughs> croissant, I bought a house because that's how bad my French is. Did you actually? What a hilarious story. Yeah. I mean, I, what happened was the, the uh, immobilier, the estate agent, was next to the um, <laughs> boulangerie. So well, there was a queue for the croissant and I just wandered in. But of course, it, probably at the back of my mind was, well, this isn't a bad place to live. Um, and the truth okay. is that when you say to people, when I, when I say to people, um, you know, I'm with my business partner and the inevitable question is, well, where do you live? Where's your office? And we say, we don't have an office. David, uh, my business partner is in um, Surrey, and, and then I'll say, oh, Richard's in the south of France. And everyone goes, oh my God, that's amazing. But, but it's not really, it's just where I live. It's a lovely place to live, um, but I'm 30 minutes to an airport. There's a daily flight into Stansted. I fly on Ryanair. So the cost of my flight is usually less than the cost of a sandwich while I'm waiting for it. Um, <laughs> so for me, it's not that radical, but sometimes other people look at the things we do and they think, Gosh, that's radical. But I suppose the truth mm. is you get to a point and you think, I'm not quite sure what I can do. And I didn't know what to do. There I was. I knew divorce was the right thing to do. It was just about facing a new part of my life. And I think I just got to the stage of saying, do you know what? I can take risks, but they're not really risks. If I don't like France, I'll come home or back to the yeah. UK. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, when we, we, we say I could, people say I could never do that. It's like, well, why not? I see as much of my family now as I ever did. I see my friends as often as I ever did. Um, okay. You know, I get on a, a plane that takes me an hour and a half. And it's no different to getting on a, a train that could take three or four hours. So from that point of view, it's not that radical. And sometimes we make we, we do things that we think are radical that in reality probably aren't. You know, I haven't sort of you sure. know, built a boat and sailed across the, you know, to find the new world. Yeah, sure. Your, your life hasn't been like totally uprooted. One of the things we talked about for overcoming any of those difficulties that you might have faced or whatever impact it might have had on you was journaling. And I don't think we've actually mm -hmm. talked much about journaling on this show before, which is a bit strange in hindsight. We might have talked about it a little bit, but um, talk to us about journaling and how journaling has helped you and really even what it is in case anyone doesn't doesn't understand. Oh, well, do you know, people, I've heard people use this phrase journaling, um, and sometimes uh, one of the things I do is I, um, I do an apprenticeship program for people who want to get into events. And I say to them, probably the most important thing you can do, because you produce a portfolio that is submitted mm. for your qualification, and the journal, which is a diary, is going to be the most important thing. But your diary has to be more than got up, had breakfast, went out. And uh, I've kept a diary probably for about 20 years, and I probably write a paragraph a day, um, and I thoroughly enjoy it. But it's there's a bit of, this is what I did, but it also has to be a bit of, this is what I learned. And the model we talk about is, is three things. It's what, so what, now what? So the what is, um, and it could be something simple. The what is, I went out, and uh, I had to go and cut the grass. The so what? It rained. The lawnmower was soaked and I couldn't get the bloody thing to start. The now what is, when you've cut the grass, remember to put the lawnmower away because it doesn't like rain. Yeah. Now, that's kind of a very simple thing. But yeah, you know, yeah. the what could be, um, was on the tube, saw, uh, I don't know, saw a very nice young lady. We smiled at each other all the way until, until she got off. The so what is, I've been thinking about her all day. The now what is, next time you see someone, you're making eye contact with them and they're returning it and you're flirting with them, do something about it. <laughs> yeah. So this is the concept. It's the what, the so what, and the now what. And probably the most important bit is the now what, because how often do we meet people and they keep making the same mistake over and over again? Because they do sure. the what and they do the so what, but they don't do the now what, which is don't the make what. the same mistake again. Go and do something yeah. different. And all I can tell you is it's really reassuring. Sometimes yeah, I get on the plane um, and I will open my uh, computer and I'll do my diary and then I'll think, what was I doing on this day 10 years ago? And I go back to my diary 10 years ago on this day and it's like, oh my God, is that what I was doing? Wow. Whew, come a long way. You um, must have like a whole forget. cabinet of like rows and rows and rows of journals. 
Well, I would, except there are probably some things in it I wouldn't want anyone else to read. Uh, so it's all sure. locked away on my computer. Oh, I see. It's all digital. That's interesting. It's all digital. And you're right, because, yeah. I mean, the thing is, there are some people who publish, or after their death, their diaries get published. And I'm thinking, no, probably not. I don't want to name the innocents and probably the guilty. Um, but you have, so it's password protected as well. Maybe when I die, I'll leave the password for someone to find out. Yeah, I'll, just, uh, I'll leave the, clues like a like a Sherlock yes. like a Sherlock episode. Yeah, exactly. But I think yeah, and you're right. I think it's such an important thing. Again, it goes back to my point about when you confront the monster, when you write it down. As soon as you write it down, the problem starts being less of a problem. It's there in mm. front of you, and then you can start thinking about options. And you know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing sure. wrong with making new mistakes, but try not to make make the same mistake again. And having a journal to go back to is a useful thing to do um, and it doesn't have yeah. to be war and peace yeah yeah a couple of sentences <laughs> a day are enough because you know you've normally got your calendar that tells you where you were who you saw that kind of thing so it's it sometimes it is about feelings um, and you can have this you can celebrate mm. the things that went right and the things that went wrong but um it's probably a, a very good point to then you you may have told your listeners this before but you know the, the you know the formula for life i plus r equals o Oh, now you want me to tell you about with, it. With I plus R. R. I plus R equals O is the magic formula for life. And <laughs> I can say, you're looking mystified, so I, I will confused. tell you. Um, yeah, yeah uh, no, I'll tell you. So you know how some people will say, I've had a bad day. We all do. We say, I've had a bad day. And the truth mm. is, you don't have a bad day. But what happens is some people go through life, and what they believe is that the formula for life is I equals O. And what those those things stand for is I is incidence, the stuff that happens, mm-hmm. equals O, mm-hmm. the outcome. So, for example, okay. you know, you're going off to a meeting. You get up and, um, you know, the central heating's gone off and you have to have a cold shower and the milk's gone off. And you don't get a cup yeah. of coffee and the trains run late. Uh, and maybe you get to the meeting and the meeting's been cancelled. And all these things happen. Sure. What happens is we get back and we say, I've had a bad day. Because what we do is we believe yeah. I equals O. We believe the incidents equal the outcome. Equals the outcome. I think yeah, I see where you're going with right. this. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the one thing in, in life is often we can't control the incidents, but what we can do mm. is control our response or our reaction. So if something yeah. happens to you, change your reaction because the outcome, the, the formula for life is not I equals O, it's I plus R equals O. So my reaction mm. is, <laughs> do you know what? Shit happens. I've got some spare time yeah. now. My meeting's been cancelled or whatever. And as soon as you change that, it's like any mathematical formula. You know, I plus R equals O. Your response is the thing that will matter. I mean, you've probably been out at night and you've seen someone says something and then someone responds. It's like, you know, you've done this and then there's a fight. It doesn't have to be sure. that way. Because the incident is someone is aggressive. Your response is walk away. The outcome is no one gets hurt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Things don't just happen to us, right? Our, our, we get to choose how we respond. And that response will shape uh, our, our perception of, uh, of what's actually happened. It will, it will, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. We've talked mm. about very similar things on the show before. So mm. the idea that um, you can't control the ocean, but you can learn to ride the waves, that kind of thing, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. And it's, it's about the thing that mm. we can control and we can control our reaction. And um, and it's interesting yeah, because sometimes I'll have a call. I've, I've had things go wrong. We've been doing a lot of online events recently and we had through no fault of our own. The technology failed and the client was very unhappy. The interesting thing is mm. I kind of guess what would happen. The client was shouting and screaming on a Friday and I thought, when I finished the call, I thought, do you know what? I live in a beautiful part of the world. My wine cellar is full. The sun is shining. I'm going to go and read a book. Uh, and that's and then I've got the weekend of things to do. And on the Monday, the client was in touch before I could get in touch with them, say, sorry, I was so angry. We were very disappointed by what happened. And it's like, yeah, I kind of thought that's what would happen. Because, mm. yeah, it ain't my fault. And sometimes these things go wrong. Um, but it's not life-threatening. So my response, my reaction is enjoy the things around me that I can. I can't control sometimes mm. technology going wrong. And I think 
an awful lot of the time, we just need to manage our responses. People bring you problems, manage your responses. Things go wrong, mm. take a deep breath, manage your responses. You know, yeah. It will do wonders for your mental health and you'll simply enjoy life a lot more. Yeah. It kind of brings me to my very last question I want to ask, although you might have just answered it, in which case we can ignore this. But um, <laughs> I'd love to end off with one piece of advice you would give to your younger self. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm not sure whether there is any because I'm just thinking my younger self would probably ignore the older me just like it ignored <laughs> everyone else who gave him advice. Sure. Um, and I think sometimes it's it's um, it's the old cliche. It's about the it's about the journey, not the destination. So, you know, what happens yeah. on the way kind of shapes us. Having said that, um, I, I think, uh, yeah, we were talking about this. I've, I've just made this uh, video for a bit of fun. It was called Dent in the Sofa. Uh, your viewers are most welcome, or your listeners can go and have a look at it. And it was a 20-minute video. It was about things I learned as someone who works in the world of events that event people can learn from um, binge-watching TV. You know, we've all binge-watched TV through the pandemic. There are lessons that can be learned, and I think you know, probably some of the lessons are useful for everyone about you know, how we present and how we communicate. But one of the lessons was that we should never be afraid about the things that go wrong, and we should have a laugh and be prepared to laugh at ourselves. Um, and I think I, I, I mentioned this to you tonight, that um, one of the, the points I made was that um, there's a program that runs uh, on UK television. It's called It'll Be All Right on the Night. And it's been running for 40 years. And effectively, yeah. it's a collection of bloopers. It's famous actors, politicians, newsreaders who've been caught screwing up. And every time they show the program, <laughs> it kind of tops the viewing charts. Why? Because we like it. We like watching other people you know, screw up a bit. And it's not generally it's not malicious. Um, and sometimes the, you know, you'll have the famous newsreader who will talk about how they got completely tongue tied. And we laugh with them. We don't laugh at them. And what I would say is, you know, to me, humor is one of the most important things. Um, and sometimes we mm. have very humorous lives. And then when we get to work, we kind of take the humor out of it. And we shouldn't because sure. it's so, so valuable. Mm. But great leaders... And people who are on the way to being great leaders, um, I think this goes back to being, you know, a caring, inspired leader should be prepared to stand up and tell jokes and say, let me tell you about how I screwed up um, mm. and get people to laugh maybe at you or with you. I know that there was a famous quote that said all humor is cruelty. Yeah, but I think so you have to be prepared to say, let me show you how I screwed up. And, and the video that we made on uh, for Dent in the Sofa uh, lasts about 20 minutes. And then at the end, we just put together a compilation called uh, The Bloop in the Sofa, which is effectively sure. all the mistakes. And they were all mine. And you know, yeah. they still make me chuckle. I'm happy to laugh at myself. And I think that's probably something that comes with growth and old age. You know, when, when we're young, when we're, when we're kids, when we grow up, we love when we can make people laugh. And then there's a point where we suddenly start becoming self-conscious and we don't want people laughing at us. And then there's probably a degree of maturity when we go, do you know what? The world can be a pretty depressing place. Let's all have a laugh, even if it's at me. And I think, going back to your question, sorry, you did ask, is I would tell the younger me, if you make people laugh, it's a huge achievement, even if they're laughing at you. So don't be ashamed of it. Really? And I bet that's not what people are expecting the, the piece of advice to be, right, when I ask the question. But I find it really interesting. We don't always bring our true selves into everything that we do. Um, and I think actually a lot of the times we don't, we change ourselves for the situation. We wear a mask, we play a role, um, and it removes us from being a real, a real part of whatever it is that's going on. Because if we're not our whole selves, are we, if we're not, if we're not feeling like ourselves, are we really there? Are we really present? Are we really giving everything we can give? I don't know. It's an interesting thought to end the show for today. I do want to leave us there. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Today's been a, a really different episode to normal, um, but I've really, really enjoyed it. Where can people find you and learn more about you and connect with you if they'd like to? 
Well, what I'd say is um, uh, people are most welcome to go to the website, which is www.dentinthesofa.com, just because you can see a little bit of um, hopefully inspired silliness, which is, uh, as I mentioned, nice. serious lessons with some humour. You can also um, download the ebook free of charge and you'll find the contact details. So I'm always delighted to hear from people. So any of your listeners are more than welcome to get in touch if I can help in any way a chat a cup of coffee even a zoom meeting um always willing to do that cost nothing nice i love it thank you so much and thank you for being so accommodating and positive i love it richard have a great one hopefully speak to you again soon it'll be a pleasure thank you very much indeed Alright, thank you so much for tuning in. Sharing our stories like this can be very difficult, but we find it really important. Important for leaders and especially young leaders, for those of you listening to know that you are not alone in experiencing mental health challenges. A final reminder before we close that across the season I'm running that giveaway. All you need to do is fill out a really quick survey for us. It really helps me out. If you can, I also love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you ever so much. It genuinely means a lot. I've been Seven. This has been Lost and Searching, and we will be back very soon.